Welcome to Future 39, the podcast where every episode, we'll take a shared peek at one of our infinite possible futures, and maybe a couple more. My name is John Kutz here. I write for Forbes, I consult with tech companies, and I'm writing Insights from the Future. It's a book of news from the future. Our guest today, super interesting gentleman. He's been the chief evangelist at Software AG. He's been a vice president at SAP, big German company, counting software, much more than that. He's written for Forbes, Wired, VentureBeat, and other publications, spoken at TED, and, didn't know this, organized a TEDx himself. Now he's looking at re-examining how the future should look through a hypercritical lens. If you follow him on Twitter, you will get that. Um, he's been a futurist, but now he calls himself an anti-futurist. So I'm pretty interested in that. He's also run a consultancy and still runs one, but guess what? It's an anti-consultancy. So it's sort of an anti-think tank consultancy kind of service, he says. I'll tell you exactly what you don't want to hear because what you do want to hear isn't worth much, no matter how much or how high a price you've paid someone to say it. So super interesting. Shoots from the hip, shoots from the lip. Uh, please welcome, this is Theo Priestley. Welcome. Thanks, John. Thanks. I enjoyed that little intro. <laughs> I'm glad you did. Start with this anti-futurism type of thing. I think it's a Yogi Berra quote, the future ain't what it used to be. I mean, this year has been kind of an eye-opener for us, hasn't it? Um. Yeah, it has. I think it's a, it's a reckoning happening, and certainly in some areas in the tech sector, um, around what um, uh, what people perceive is the, uh, the 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 right kind of future that we should be aiming for, um, and that's certainly where I try to sort of uh, look from a sort of a hypercritical lens. Um, there's there's a lot of hype, um, and and I try to sort of peel back the veneer. Um, in terms of hype and marketing and actually say, well, is there really anything under the hood worth talking about? Um, and is it really worth something that we should be investing in for the future? Interesting. Interesting. So let's go back in time a little bit to before you were an anti-futurist or uh, <laughs> anti-consultant um, and, and you were a futurist and you, you still are obviously in a lot of ways, but what did you see back then some years ago and, and how has that changed? Um, so, I mean, I've been writing blogs for about 10 years or so. Um, and, uh, I was very much sort of concentrated in the digital transformation kind of industry. So a lot of what I saw, um, stemmed from, from the future of work, I guess, um, and, and how people would interface with various systems. And so some of the predictions were more around what was going to happen for IOT, um, how are people going to interact with systems, whether it was going to be voice, whether it was going to be touch, um, what kind of systems would be um, would uh, adopt these kind of technologies? Um, uh, and, um, and in terms of the future of work, what would it mean for collaboration? What would it mean for hierarchy? And as the years kind of sort of rolled on, I started to look at other trends and, and kind of connect the dots a little bit. So, you know, I saw that AI would would have a, a, a severe impact on on IoT, for example, um, in the future. Um, I looked at sort of startup trends to sort of understand well which ones are worth looking at, which ones are kind of junk, 
Um, and then as I, I guess as I steeped myself um, more in that kind of sort of culture, more in, in, in forward projecting, um, I could see patterns in terms of, well, actually, this isn't really the way we want to go. You know, we shouldn't really be aiming for the singularity, for example, you know, the merging of humans <laughs> and genes, you know, that Ray Kurzweil um, kind of sort of bangs on or has banged on about for the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years or so. Um, and that's, again, I, I guess that's where the anti-futurist kind of thing was born from, was that a lot of the old guard futurism predictions aren't necessarily the ones that we should be aiming for. Talk to me a little bit about that, Tom. I mean, first of all, I'm glad to hear that you're not the flying car kind of futurist. And, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm also, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I'm also kind of glad to hear that you're not the kind of futurist that, you know, everything is rosy, everything is amazing, you know, we'll all live on Mars and we'll have a cyber truck and, <laughs> you know, we'll drive around and, and, and have a great life. I mean, Obviously, we want a great life, and there's amazing things that we see technology can do for us in the future. But I think this year we've also seen we've become more aware of things like surveillance capitalism. We've become more aware of things that that algorithms and AI are doing to us and impacting what it means to be human or what it's like to have a human experience. Uh, just today, we're recording. Uh, now it's uh, Thanksgiving Day in in, in the United States where no, neither of us live. I'm in Canada. You're in Edinburgh or, or somewhere close there, right? Yeah, Edinburgh. That's right. Yeah. Excellent. You know, uh, Facebook and, and, and Instagram are down and it's a big deal, right? So, so talk to me about the kind of future that we should be building. Um, I, I think we have become very heavily reliant on technology um, as, as a species. Um, and you know, the, today is a classic example where, you know, we have two major outages of services built by one company that we rely on. Um, and I remember um, a while back when Facebook started having, you know, outages and and it was like, oh, no, I, I've had, you know, all my website and all my web services are integrated into Facebook with the, you know, with a like button or, or log in with, through Facebook, you know, or, or uh, you know, uh, authentication and, and I can't do anything. My, you know, my life is crippled because my website <laughs> doesn't work and I can't log into my bank because I use it with, with, with Facebook authentication, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and it kind of strikes you that, you know, it's, it's really dangerous to build a, a future based on singular techno, technological experiences or technological um, uh, services. And, and we're becoming more removed from human experiences for example like you say um i saw there was a, there was a, a release of a, a, a new another soft uh, another social network called cocoon uh, which is only for family and friends or small groups and i'm like why do we need this um pick up the bloody phone and talk to your family or, or you know or text <laughs> them or something we don't need to surround ourselves in small bubbles enabled by technology and i think this is this this kind of worries me uh, when we're talking about building futures uh, in that the, the technology is is becoming more and more in front of the person um, rather than and, and removing them from you know from the experience and from the process itself. It's like the um, I don't know if you remember seeing it the um, 
the picture of the um, it's a snapshot of I think uh, the Golden Jubilee um, uh, of the Queen, and in the picture in the background, everyone is watching this event through their mobile phone, and there is this old lady who's the only one who's actually not on the mobile phone, actually watching the event firsthand and everyone's watching it through the screen. And I just thought that's really sad that we place so much in front of us um, uh, rather than just actually experiencing it for real. So um, I, I, you know, I do feel that technology is starting to eat into what it means to be human and what it means to experience things as a human. Um, I, I think that's really, really valid. I mean, I think that when we see everybody at a concert uh, recording something or or you're you're on vacation and you go to the viewpoint and 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 people look at it for about a microsecond before whipping out the smartphone or they just race up to it with the smartphone, capture the picture and then leave uh, without actually experiencing it for what it is. A lot of us feel like there's something missing there. There's something wrong there. And that's something that's probably going to get even worse with the, the with the rise of smart glasses, which we see are probably down five years, 10 years down the road or something like that, right? I mean, right now, already so much of our life is digitally uh, encased, <laughs> digitally enclosed. What we experience, how we see things is through glass, right? Through a device in our hands, uh, a device on our desks or something like that. And, and we'll only get more so um, as we live in the matrix uh, with smart glasses and augmented reality and mixed reality. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. And I think, um, you know, other things like you mentioned, sort of valence capital, for example, I mean, you know, there has to be a trade-off somewhere. I mean, uh, the you know, for all the surveillance that takes place in China, for example, they do actually build services around that. And I think because the populace has grown up with that, they're quite they're quite comfortable with the trade-off. So they know that the government takes all our data, but we actually have an improved service. And it's, if you've ever been to China, it's amazing that you literally cannot survive without using um, WeChat because everything is built into that. And um, they know that everything that they do is monitored and, and even through WeChat itself. But I think the services that you get back, um, it, it, obviously to the to, to the citizens there, it is worth it. Um, even the social credit system, for example, I think you know it does drive a lot of conformity and and the removal of basic services. If you've you know if you walk across the road or jaywalk, for example. Um, you know, and you get points deducted, or if you you shout on the, on a on a train um, and it causes a disturbance, you get points deducted off your score system, um, and that impacts your ability to access other services. And it does force people to conform in, into a, a different way of thinking. But um, I think when we look at what we want to do in the West in terms of well, what you want hyper personalization, blah blah but I don't want to give you all my details and I don't want to sacrifice my privacy, then it's like, well, how can companies or how can corporations or how can even the government build those kind of enabled services without you understanding that there is a trade-off required? Um, so that it's we're in this sort of weird transitional state where I, um, we have various parties who want to build things um, and clever things, um, but a lot of us are very sort of bulk at the idea of having to give up all of our personal freedom and our data privacy 
in order to build that. Yeah, yeah, I can totally see that. I mean, and uh, it, it's amazing because it was just probably a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, that the Black Mirror episode came out, right? Where this this woman is getting scored uh, on on her reactions and interactions with yeah. everybody that she's passing by, and we thought, whoa, that's a horrible future, and we never want to get there, and we're living in it right now. At least if we're living in China with the social credit system, and probably living with it here as well. I think it is interesting the point that you brought up, which is that we do want our environment to conform to who we are and what we want. We, we, we do want that. That can become a cocoon. That can become a prison of our own preference. Um, but there is something, there is some value in that as well. I think that <clears throat> one of the challenges with achieving that right now is that all the AI that we interact with today is owned by somebody else. And is owned by somebody else with a vested interest in selling our time, selling our attention, selling uh, something to us or our eyeballs to somebody else. And we don't own that AI. And I know there's a bunch of projects out there and I, I, I can't help but think that at some point in the future, everybody will own or have the ability to own their own AI, which then can help. It can be a virtual butler in some cases, in some sense, and and, and control and manage some of the things that are going on, be an assistant in a lot of ways in your life, but also um, do what you want it to do rather than what the surveillance capitalist uh, company wants to do. Yeah, um, it, going back to your point about um, predictions that I've made in the past, I mean, one of them that I wrote in the blog, probably through a gin-fueled haze, um, was um, uh, the, the, that kind of thing, which um, uh, uh, a big data, uh, I, I think I called it a big data fortune teller was the, the title of the um, of the blog itself. And, and, I did, and I did believe at that point in time that we would – be able to download all the interactions that we've ever had on social media and things like that and our banking transactions and and who we've spoken to and our text messages and actually feed it into you know a personalized algorithm or an algorithm that we have and that begins to make sense of the data and of our daily lives for us um like you say rather than all that information being scooped up by corporate entities and they make sense of it and then they basically feed it back in in the form of advertising and and and, and whatnot. Um, we basically have that data and then we feed it through an algorithm for ourselves and then it basically says, right, well, based on everything that you've told me, your life's a mess and we should turn it around, for example. <laughs> <laughs> and, and these are the things that we need to do to help you. Um and and I think that would be immensely useful for um, for the you know people in general um, to make sense of their lives on a daily basis to wean themselves off for perhaps I know it's kind of a dichotomy to sort of say wean yourself off technology but then you're relying on a on an AI to help you do that but um, you know wean yourself off other things because it's actually helping you it's helping you and directing you to to make small changes to to you know to to better your life. Um, because it's understanding your daily habits. And I think habits are one of the toughest things that humans need to break. Um, I think we talk about the, you know, we talk about climate change, for example, um, and and how it's everyone else's fault, but ours, um, when in fact, you know, there's 7 billion people on the planet doing daily things that actually impact the climate as well as the, 
you know, the big corporations who are pumping out CO2 and, and not giving a damn. So we have to break some small habits in order to force them to break one big habit, for example. So, yes. you know, yeah. So I think if there are things that can help us achieve that, then I'm all for that kind of sort of service. Nice. Nice. Let's, let's um, segue off that then. And, and, and you've talked about the future of work. Um, we saw the book come out probably it's gotta be, you know, three, four years now, the four day work week. Um, and, and I think there are actually some countries that are moving in that direction. Some of the Scandinavian countries that are moving that direction have a four day work week down from the five. I uh, can't imagine that'll come in the States anytime soon. They're probably going to move up to six, <laughs> but uh, do you see that being achievable? Um, I do in the long run. Um, I think, and again, this it, it kind of goes back to the, the the habits kind of thing. Um, I think what needs to what needs to happen is we use the technologies to break the cycle of the the five day working week, what what and and the mentality around that. So when we talk about well, um, doing four days or or five days or or making actually using technology to make us more productive, what that really means is let's cram in more work that you can achieve in those five days, Um, not let's make you work more efficiently and actually give you some time back for yourself. And I think that's the cycle that we need to break in order to achieve a a four-day working week, for one thing, is, is using the technology to you know, help us achieve this, either the same amount of work or slight something slightly, you know, above that level of work within four days, and then give that give the worker um, an extra day back for themselves. Um, and they have to switch off. You know, we have to recognise that yes, we're always online, but at the same time, we're giving you the extra day. We're not going to email you to ask you to do some work from home or anything else like that. Yeah. And we're not going to disturb that time. Yeah. And then the second cycle that we need to break is is obviously, well, how do we fill that time? You know, how do we not spend a day binging Netflix, for example, because, you know, because we can now? How do we enable people to, you know, realize some other kind of potential that they have, whether it's creativity, whether it's learning some kind of new skill that's outside of the workplace entirely, do something for yourself, um, and how does that happen? So there are a couple of big things, a couple of big societal shifts. I think it's our attitudes to work, it's the uh, the, the the corporations' attitudes towards work and productivity, um, and then humanity's attitude to you know, well, how do we move ourselves forward? Well, I think that's essential for for people um, to have some of their time back. I mean, what is the point of having technology? Technology is a tool that helps us do things faster, better, smarter, hopefully. Um, it, it, can, it can be for other things as well, like military technology. <laughs> but um, w- we have technology for a reason. And at some point, we see that everything that can uh, – like. Uh, Aaron Levy, CEO of Box, told me that anything that that he agreed with statement that anything that can be automated will be automated over the long term, right? And and so as that happens, um, shouldn't we use that as a way for people to have more time? That shouldn't it take less and less time over the course of coming years for you to earn enough money to have a reasonably good life, a reasonably good living, a couple of vacations, a home, those sorts of things that you want to have. And shouldn't you be able to do that in less and less time because of the benefits of technology? Uh, I think we need to build that in that, in that direction. 
Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, if you think, um, I mean, uh, doctors and nurses, for example, classic classic example of a profession that is completely overworked, vastly underpaid, in my opinion, as well. Um, and and we see constant reports about some of their work being threatened by algorithms, radiologists, for example, who are, um, you know, who, who can turn to an algorithm to, to, to spot diseases on x-rays um, a lot faster. Um, and I think rather than saying, well, hey, we can, we can make you turn these things around twice as fast now, but you're still going to do a 60-hour week, you know, we can say, well, actually, well, let's, let's bring down those hours a week to something a bit more manageable, which means you can actually spend time with your family. You don't have to sleep on a hospital bed in the dark in the dungeon um, and then sort of, you know, not have a shower and have to wake up in five hours time kind of thing, you know, um, if, if the algorithm can take that work away from you. And it, and it is this kind of sort of attitude of, um, you know, doing things faster, smarter, more efficiently, but, but giving, recognizing that there is still a human being at the end of that work process. Um, and what, how do we basically make their life have more meaning outside of work you know if if you are uh living to work then there's clearly something wrong uh, i think with society yeah i mean certainly there are some people who that is their life and that is the meaning of their life and and maybe that's elon musk um but i'm gonna guess that that's a that's a small fraction of, of the world and i'm gonna guess that even in those cases uh those those hyper achievers um those those workaholics um, would benefit by having some more time for personal time and family time and other things like that. Um, you've talked about uh, kind of a new golden age or renaissance. Um, can you talk about what you mean by that? Yeah, so um, I, that, that kind of sort of stems to uh, stems from the this sort of four day working week and giving time back. Um, I, you know, I. I kind of mentioned this in my TED talk, uh, where I where I spoke about sort of would you follow a, a robot leader, and and what would people do um, if AI, you know, not took over the world, but if AI made our lives a lot easier. And I, I and I do see algorithms and machine learning and AI. Sort of, um, uh, I'm I'm of the mind that if if we um, if you want to let AI do the mundane chores, then just let them. Um, because you know we weren't meant to be sitting in a cubicle in a Dilbert box um, doing really mundane things. Um, you know we want to expand. You know what it means to be human. It, we want to expand. You know what what humanity means as a collective um, in terms of art, studying philosophy, sociology, all those kind of sort of things, which are the softer skills rather than technological skills, which is development, coding. Um, you know, all those kind of sort of things. So um, when I spoke about uh, a renaissance or a golden age, it was almost peering back in time and saying, well, look at what the Greeks achieved because they were free to think. And what could we do that? What could we do again if we were free to think, free to create, um, you know, uh, have that kind of sort of freedom again given to us because, you know, the, the AI, well, AI and robots and stuff like that are actually going to, do the really crap stuff that we don't want to do. You know, nobody really wants to. You know, nobody wants to fill a shelf. No. You know, in a supermarket. You know, nobody wants to sort of serve behind in, in in a McDonald's or a Burger King, for example. It. You know, we were meant to be better than that, and and I think we are in this kind of sort of really painful transitional period where 
you know, uh, we can see that there will be disruption um, coming through more advanced AI and things like that. What is it going to mean? It's not going to happen next year. I mean, we see lots of predictions about, you know, uh, people worried about the AI is going to take their job. I mean, let's let's put a baseline on this. You know, there is no AI. Nobody has AI. Uh, there's some very clever algorithms out there, but they can only be, you know, they can, they can only achieve very limited things. There isn't an AI that can do everything. There's never going to be a Skynet. Um, these are so far down the line. You know, it's 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 you know it's it's not going to affect our lifetime probably. Um, and but when it does happen, when these things do occur, you know, I would hope that you know we can turn around as a species and say, well, you know, let let them do the stuff. We don't want to do it anymore. I don't mind being served by a robot for my burger. Uh, as long as it means that I can actually learn how to paint, or, or learn how uh, learn woodwork, or, or learn some kind of um, you know uh, um, plumbing or anything anything sort of practical, because you know again I think practical skills along with the softer skills are actually going to become more and more important as we face a life dealing with climate change as well. Interesting, interesting. So I can agree with. Um pretty much all that you're saying right there. And, and I do agree with that and yet see some challenges. And I know, I know you'll see those as well, but I, I, I'm interested in your answer to this question because, you know, let's say we have that future. Uh, let's say it's 10 years, 20 years from now, whatever it is. And, and, and we figured out how uh, to let smart systems, automation and robotics do a lot of the grunt work in society. We've also figured out a way to share the wealth and the benefits of that. Uh, and I'm guessing some nations are going to be a little better than others at that, by the way. But, um, but you know, what if, you know, 90% of people just want to scroll more through TikTok, watching videos and enjoying themselves all day or watch Netflix all day, uh, if that's still around? Um, what's the scenario there that you see? Um, uh, the, to me, there's no real easy answer. And I mean, this goes way back into, you know, um, just society in general, I think. Um, you, there will always be pockets of society who will um, be happy to do nothing and, and contribute nothing. Um, you know, in the UK, you know, there are, and I'll probably get shot for this, or shot down for this, but there are pockets of society who are quite happy to, um, to live off um, uh, benefits um, and who, you know, who... who don't do anything. Um, I have no um, inclination to go out and work, but you know, do have a lifestyle that can be supported purely on benefits alone, and they're happy with that. and And if that's how they want to live their lives, then then that's fine. Because you know, you can't force people to be uh, to turn around what's natural for them, to human nature for them. Um, but it doesn't mean that the majority of society will be like that. Um, and I think the majority will find um, that they do want to achieve something. Uh, they do want a goal in their life that isn't tied to work, um, and and does give them some you know intrinsic meaning to 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 who they are. Um, so I I don't think you know automation and AI and and all these kind of sort of emerging technologies are going to solve all societal problems. Um, 
but they will for the majority. Yeah, I, I think I tend to agree with you that uh, for the majority of people, they will find more time to discover what it means to be human and what it means to be them and explore their creativity, explore their interests, explore whether it's arts and crafts, whether it's technology, whether it is a practical skill or something like that. Perhaps it's more interactions with people, um, uh, other things like that, but that people largely will explore positive things. Um, and, and, and I hope that is actually the case. Uh, I wanted to also talk, um, you just closed a deal to do a pretty significant book project. Um, and I think I'm a part of that actually. Can you tell us a little bit about what is that book project? Uh, What's it called? Uh, what are you doing and, and when's it going to come out? Sure. Um, uh, yes, you are part of that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to say, (laughs) um, yeah, so, um, I came, uh, you know, I've, I've been mulling the idea of writing a book for a while. I've been putting it off and putting it off because I think in the back of my mind, when when you write a, a kind of business-related type of book, it's almost like, oh, he's become a speaker. Oh, he's become a book writer now. And, that is, you know, the next thing is to become Gary Gary V. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, sell your soul that way. Um, but I, I've been keen to sort of avoid the, the sort of traditional um, business book. And what I did was um, I thought of a concept where um, I wanted to tackle um, uh, the subject of the future and what it means for um, business and society and technology in general. Um, I didn't just want to sort of do another home reduce kind of thing. Um, I wanted to involve a lot of people because I believe that um, having different viewpoints and having different inputs actually should enrich the reader experience, but also, you know, bring a broader view to um, a book. So um, I hit upon the idea of calling the book The Future Is Now, um, and the subtext is expert insights into the future um, of business, technology, and society. Um, I'm co-authoring it with another futurist um, from South Africa called Bronwyn Williams, um, and we are involving, um, you know, 20 to 30 other sort of futurists and experts in different fields to basically write um, about the future of healthcare or about the future of mobility, the future involving AI, the future of banking, all these kind of sort of um, business and, and societal um, topics that we believe will be key um, for consideration um, in the next sort of 5, 10, 15, 20 years um, and hopefully lead the the um, lead the readers through a bit of a journey but also give them some you know something back in terms of insight and in terms of how to tackle that from their own personal lives but also from a business perspective so how does a business um, adopt AI how does a business take advantage of the data from IOT what does this mean for healthcare what does this mean if I want to sort of create some kind of um, new banking empire that kind of thing so um, I'm hoping um, that the you know the, the the topics resonate with a lot of people, both on from a personal but also from a professional level. Um, and uh, Bloomsbury have you know we're excited when we pitched it. Um, they're picking it up. We signed that um, deal this week. Um, it will be available. with fingers crossed. Um, April twenty one. Wow, very specific date. Yeah, we have challenging editorial uh, deadlines to meet. Excellent. 
Excellent. Well, I can't wait. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, starting on the piece that, that I'm working on and looking forward to seeing the, the entire uh, thing as well. I want to thank you for taking some time in your evening uh, in Scotland to join on the podcast here and to contribute your insight uh, on what you see in the future, what you see around the corner, uh, what you see as the future of work and maybe even the future of humanity along with technology. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Thank you. 